Good morning. Let's one more time go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we come to you this morning asking that you would allow our eyes to see you in this passage. Allow our hearts to be calmed. Allow us to not be distracted by whatever is going on, whether it's exciting or sad, whether, whether life is going well or not. Allow our minds to see you, our hearts to see you. Allow us to sense whatever you would call us to and give us the strength then, Father, that we need to follow you in whatever way you call us. We do love you. And it's in your name we pray. Amen. So my family had a house project this last week. And it's not about the house project, and it's certainly not about us. But there was something that happened in that process that I didn't expect. Somewhere between Monday morning, when, when I had some conversations with some people and we decided what we were going to do when we closed on the house, and Friday when I got back in town uh, after being at a pastor's retreat, somewhere in there I stopped being necessary. And that's a good thing. It's a really good thing because this is not really my forte. And I didn't have to make decisions. I walked downstairs yesterday and somebody actually said, well, here's the guy with the answers. And so I turned around to see who was behind me. I don't have the answers. Maybe I had a few of the answers. But it wasn't about me getting the projects done because because there were a group of people who showed up Friday and then again on Saturday. And actually we had so much help that the group that showed up on Saturday, some of them had to go home because there was nothing actually for them to do because everything only could happen in one small area. There just wasn't as much to do. And that had absolutely nothing to do with me. I was peripheral to that whole process. And that's a bit of what we see here. Psalm chapter 13. Now be, be remembering the silent P idea. This is, this is engaging with a God who is there, but we're not necessarily seeing him speak. He's not necessarily doing the things that we see in other passages of Scripture of his activity, but he is there. To the choir master, a psalm of David. Now, that's going to become important as, as we read through this and see the aspects that this psalm is about, especially at the end, he's going to be reminded of what God has done for him, and then it being David is relevant. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in the heart all my days? How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? Consider and answer me, O Lord my God. Light up my eyes, lest I see the sleep, lest I sleep the sleep of death. Lest my enemies say I have prevailed over him, lest my foes rejoice because I am shaken. But I have trusted in your steadfast love. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. And that last bit is the part where it really becomes relevant that it's David who's writing because we can look back and see what's gone on in David's life that brings him to that point. Yet, 
with all of the things that we will point to that have gone on in David's life, he starts this psalm absolutely at the end of his rope. How long, O Lord? Will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the days? How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? If you're going to write a poem or a song, and you're going to repeat the idea of, of this seemingly never-ending cycle, how long have I been forgotten? How long are you going to ignore me? How long am I going to see other people be, be victorious? How long is this going to continue? What you can know about that is right or wrong, correlating with reality or not, this author feels like this is never going to end. The author feels like they've gone through this for an incredible amount of time and they can't get out. He feels like God has abandoned him. God has forgot him. He's hidden his face from him. And that's not, that's not a, uh, he's actually seen uh, God in all of his glory sort of wording. This is, this is just a reality of recognizing the person of God. And, and he had been there. He had sensed that. He had felt that. He had, he had walked that, seen the presence of God in his life. And now he's not. At least he's feeling like he's not. Again, it's, it's not actually a comment on how long has this gone on. Has it been a week? Has it been a month? Has it been a year? Has it been what amount of time? It's not that. It is just the way he feels in that moment. And he feels abandoned. He feels like God has hidden his face from him. How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? He can't even get out of this. Day in, day out, it doesn't end, it doesn't stop. Whatever pain is there will not let go. And he's not sure what to do. You have, you are, or you will be there. We'll all sense it. We'll all feel it. Troubles will happen. Illness will happen. Sickness will happen. People will attack us, abuse us, persecute us, whatever it is, and we will feel this. So what do we do? A big step of what we do has been all summers looking at the Psalms, seeing God be active even when it's not felt immediately by the author. But this Psalm particularly it drives us to a point that we need to be at. So abandonment or, or felt abandonment. God, God didn't actually abandon him. That's not what God does. And we see that over and over in the Psalms. It's felt, but it's not real. God doesn't change, so he hasn't started to abandon us. But he feels it. God has hidden his face from him. He's got sorrow in his heart. His enemies are victorious over him. And keep in mind, again, this is David. His enemies being victorious over him mean they're trying to take his kingdom. They're trying to kill him. He's running for his life, potentially. Many times in his life, he did have to run for his life. How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? And then, and then you'll, you'll sense a break. 
there's not a break in the same sense that we would write a poem and have a stanza change where we format it in that way. We don't necessarily get that, but you can sense it. How long, how long, how long, how long? Now he says to God, consider and answer me, O Lord, my God. He said, you've abandoned me, you've forgotten me, you've left me, but, but please just, just take a moment and give me an answer to my question. Deep inside, David knew he hadn't been abandoned by God, even if it felt that way. Consider and answer me, O Lord my God. Light up my eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death. That's a weird phrase. What is he telling God? And this is all going to become relevant to how he moves forward. So first he says, God, you've abandoned me. But then he says, I don't have an answer. Only you can give me an answer. Now he says, light up my eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death. What does that mean? The best understanding of that is that the author, David, feels like he's exhausted to the point of death, fighting against this, this foe, against this trouble, against this hardship that he can't get away from, and he's almost to the point of giving up. So again, back to the start of this psalm. This is not a short thing. Or at least it's so exhausting that he doesn't know how to continue. He's at the end of what he can do. Light up my eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death, lest my enemies say I have prevailed over him. And here's a shift again in thought. So it's no longer just give me an answer, make me awake, but it's, God, if, if you don't, then my enemy, who's also your enemy, is going to say, see, I was stronger than him and his God. In our culture, we don't have that particularly when people say that they're going to run for president one guy against another, which is coming up this year somehow and unfortunately, I mean unfortunately because I don't want to listen to the ads, not a political statement. Boy, I almost got myself in trouble. Anyway, this is an ad-related comment. I listen to music and all of a sudden all I get is ads. But my, the best part is my, all of my stuff still thinks I live in Denver. So it's telling me all of the Colorado people, I'm like, hey, whatever. Not relevant, but when we have two political people going against each other, one says, I'm going to beat you. But here they say, I'm going to beat you and your God. And if I win, it means that I'm stronger than your God. So when David says, here, lest my enemy say I've prevailed over him, he's saying to God, God, you know that this is a mark against your fame this is a mark against the way people see you if somebody beats me in this sense. Lest my enemies say I prevailed over him, lest my foes rejoice because I am shaken. So, so what's the shift? The shift is that in the beginning, David sees David. And he says, here's my trouble. I don't know what to do. I don't have an answer. I need to figure out what to do. I feel lost. All of the focus is on David. The shift is he starts to say, God, you need to do something. Give me an answer. Light up my eyes. You need to make it so that my foes don't prevail against me. The shift goes from David being the individual 
and all of the focus on him to God being the focus. That shift is important. We're going to come back to it because really that's the crux of this entire psalm. But the shift is incredibly important for us when we feel lost. When we feel lost, we may very well be lost. We may be so far out of our depth that we can't hopefully succeed. But the problem is that we focus on our abilities to succeed. And the shift happens when the focus changes to God, to Christ, to the Holy Spirit working in us, around us, or through us. And all of a sudden, he's got a new direction to go. And he finishes this psalm saying, but, so so I'm in trouble. I'm lost. I'm abandoned. I feel abandoned. You hold the answers. You hold the solutions. And all of that, but I have trusted in your steadfast love. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. When he speaks of this steadfast love, what is David speaking of? Well, we're going to give an answer that he didn't have. Paul explains what love is in 1 Corinthians chapter 13. And he says in verses 4 to 7, love is... So the steadfast love of God, right? Love is patient and kind. It doesn't envy, it doesn't boast, it isn't proud, it isn't rude, it isn't self-seeking. It's not about me. It's not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. It doesn't delight in evil, but it rejoices with the truth. That's a quick rundown of what love is. So when it says that that he remembers God's steadfast love toward him, it's all of that. Lamentations chapter 3. You may not know this, but our oldest is Isaiah. I really wanted to name him Isaiah Jeremiah. I thought that would be really fun. You know, I was coming out of seminary. I was like, this would be great. My dad said, the problem is your next kid is Lamentations Ezekiel. And that doesn't go so well. So, but in Lamentations, Lamentations chapter 3, we come to an incredible verse. Lamentations chapter 3, verses 22 and 23. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They, his love and his mercies, are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. So now back in Psalm chapter 13, this is the steadfast love that David is writing about, the kind that's renewed every day, that's coupled with mercy. It's not just a kindness, but it's a love coupled with mercy, which is coupled with grace. Starting September 10th, we're going to be spending about 15 weeks looking at the attributes of God. Who is he? What does he do? As Chris and I listed all these out, we we put mercy, but you can't put mercy without putting grace with it. They're so tied together. As we talked about God's love, all of a sudden I was like, well, but this is also tied with his mercy and his grace. So we're going to see overlap in all of these different attributes of God. And his love here is overlapped with his mercy, which is always tied with his grace. I have trusted in your steadfast love. That's where David had put his hope. 
and he needed to be reminded of that. How was he reminded of where he had put his hope? He was reminded because he took the focus off of him and put it on what God was doing so he didn't feel the abandonment of what our brokenness feels. And when we feel abandoned by God, it is always our brokenness that leads us there. Because God hasn't abandoned us. But in our brokenness, we don't sense reality the way that it is. And then we attribute it to God having abandoned us. Why does he put his hope in God's steadfast love? His heart will rejoice in the salvation that God brings. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 through 10, that all of this salvation, right, comes about from God's grace given to us. It's not things that we earn. It's something that he's given to us. By grace, we've been saved through faith. It's not our own doing. It's a gift of God, not by works. So that none of us can say, boy, look how good we were and boast. I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. What does that mean and why is it relevant that David is the author? Let's take a quick walk through David's life. David was born. He was a shepherd. Nobody knew him. God protected him. But then... Samuel shows up in 1 Samuel chapter 16, and he anoints this young boy, this young man, king over Israel. And then he fights Goliath. No, no, he kills Goliath. And in case you're not familiar with the story of Goliath, David did not kill Goliath with a stone. He killed him with Goliath's own sword after he hit him with a stone and then he cut his head off. That doesn't usually make it in the children's stories. <laughs> David then ended up running from Saul and lived in the wilderness in caves with, with his men and God protected him for years. He then became king over Israel and that's... Uh, that 1 Samuel 20 to 30 is him running in the wilderness. He became king over Israel in the beginning of 2 Samuel. Then he sinned with Bathsheba in chapter 11 of 2 Samuel, and God forgave him. So the steadfast love of the Lord that doesn't cease was even there when David was at his worst. Because not only did he have an affair, he killed somebody in the process to cover it up. And God forgave him because of his steadfast love. So when he's reminded of the steadfast love of the Lord and he's reminded of how God has dealt bountifully with him, we don't know where in this story that happens, but we know that all of that happened. God had dealt bountifully with him. Now, what else has God done? Matthew chapter 5, verse 45 tells us that God sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous, the just and the unjust. It's not just that it rains there, but God intentionally, specifically sends rain in a farming-style community, a livestock farming community. He sends rain so that they can continue. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 4 and 5 says that we are dead in our sins, but God, being rich in mercy, made us alive together with Christ. He brings salvation. What else does he do? Revelation chapter 19, verses 15 and 21 says that he wins, but not only that he wins against Satan, but he wins without anybody's help. 
A sword comes out of the mouth of Christ, his very words, and all of his enemies are slain. So we talk about God dealing bountifully, not just with David, but then sends us rain, allows things to continue and grow, gives us salvation, promises victory in the end. That's the salvation that he's speaking of as well earlier in this chapter. But what's really the main thrust? The main thrust is that you and I were not central pieces. If we were to think about it like the game of chess, none of us are the king, not even the queen. We're a pawn somewhere probably toward the side of the board. That's okay. It's okay. Why? Because God is the central piece. God is the central mover. God is the one who does all of this. And as soon as we try to think or say or act like we are the central piece, we have sinned. And we will find ourselves feeling abandoned by God. Why? Because we're trying to do what only he says, what he says only he can do. And as soon as we try to do that, we will feel abandoned. We will feel like we're in a dark place because we've put our hope in the wrong thing. Psalm 127, verses 1 and 2. There's a couple of of verses here that really should impact how we function. Unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. Doesn't matter how good of a builder you are. Doesn't matter what you do. If you're doing whatever work it is on your own in your power with you as the central piece, it is in vain. It's a waste of your time. Why? Because it's going to topple and break and be destroyed in a matter of moments. And then you're going to feel abandoned by God. Why do you feel abandoned by God in that moment? You feel abandoned by God because your stuff didn't last on your power. And in our brokenness, we attribute that then to God and say, you've abandoned me. But really, I was trying to do this by myself. It's not that he's abandoned me, but actually in his steadfast love, he's allowed me to see that no matter how hard I try in my own power, it can't work. And I need to trust him. I need to trust him because of what he's done, how he's dealt bountifully with us. I need to trust him because Psalm chapter 46, verse 10, last week, this is what we looked at. It says that we must be still and know that God is God. That doesn't mean laziness on our part, but it means recognizing that he's the actor and victor. We are along for the ride. Until such time, as we as God's people decide that it is not about our abilities. And, and don't read too much into this. This isn't Pastor Brock, which I never refer to myself like that, just so you know. This isn't Pastor Brock standing up front saying, you all are terrible, bad people. I don't see this happening. 
But if we don't recognize something before we start walking into it, it's going to be really hard to stay away from it. And what we need to do is recognize that it's not about us. It's not about our work, our ability, our power, our effort. It's about us pursuing God in our own brokenness, recognizing that we need him to work in us. We don't need us to work in a situation. John chapter 3, verse 30. John the Baptist is speaking, actually 29 and 30. But John the Baptist is speaking, and he's a pretty okay guy, right? I mean, if we were to list the people in Scripture who were put in relatively high positions after Jesus, John is in the first tier of people as the herald of the Messiah. John 20, or chapter 3, verses 29 and 30. He says, the one who has the bride is the bridegroom. That's Jesus, the one who is the focal point, the one who, who is going to have the, the bride, in this case, the bride of Christ, us, the church. He is the bridegroom, the most important one, right? The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. And we'll explain that in a moment. He must increase. I must decrease. This is the height of John's popularity. And his disciples come to him, and basically their comment is, hey, your followers are turning to Jesus. What are you going to do to not lose your followers? And he says, I will rejoice that they're abandoning me for Jesus. Because he must increase. I must decrease. As one of the most prominent people in all of Scripture, he's looking for an exit at the lowest possible level. Why? Because Colossians chapter 1, verse 18 tells us that Jesus himself and only Jesus is preeminent in all the earth and all the world. And Peter writes that you and I must be humble and let God exalt if and when he chooses. So now back to Psalm 46. We, we ask God to consider an answer, to light our eyes, to make our enemies not prevail over us. Why? Because we've trusted in his steadfast love, because it's all about him, his love, his mercy, that are new every day. My heart will rejoice in the salvation that only he can bring. When does he bring that salvation? I don't know. Certainly when you die. And I know that's morbid, but it's not. In our brokenness, the only final answer to it is dying, having all of our sin removed, and being in his presence. That might be the next time you have deliverance from whatever it is that's weighing you down. I don't know. I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me through all of his life. The historical reality is that God took care of David. God has taken care of us and he will take care of us. So when we feel abandoned, when we feel like God isn't there, that he's forsaken us, that he's let us go, that he's not let us sense his presence, his person, then we need to take the focus off of us and ask God to open our eyes so that in our brokenness we can recognize who he is. In our own ineptitude, we can trust him to work. Why? Because his steadfast love endures forever. It's new every day. His mercy is tied to it. He has dealt bountifully with us. He has taken care of us and will take care of us. So we can trust him when he's silent. 
We can trust him when we feel abandoned because he hasn't actually abandoned us. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your love. Thank you for your son, your grace, your mercy. God, we pray that even in these moments as we look at your scripture, and it's, and it's easy for us to, to have our minds or my mind give assent to this reality. We pray that you will let our hearts recognize the depth of what it means to trust you in these ways. We ask, Father, that you would glorify your Son in us in this moment, in these songs, in our prayers, in our time together, in our afternoons, and in our moving forward. You are the one to receive glory and honor, and we love you for it. It's in Christ's incredible name we pray. Amen.